Lord, in prayer, Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for bringing us here this morning to worship your holy name. And we pray now, Lord, that you be with us as we continue in our study on the law. And we pray that you give us understanding as how it applies to us who are Christians, who are uh, newborn creatures. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we have a question for this morning, and what is the place of the law in the life of the Christian or in the Christian's life? And the uh, short answer to that is that even though the Christian cannot be neither justified nor condemned by the law, it has a great use in his life to bring him closer to Christ. So... This is uh, paragraph 6 in chapter 19, the Confession of Faith. This is uh, a lengthy paragraph, but we will be able to see uh, everything. And uh, I remember the uh, this pastor that uh, I used to listen before. I still listen to him. His name is Albert Martin. He... Uh, used to say uh, he's still alive but he uh, I don't think he preaches anymore he's retired <coughs> um, that the human brain works like a pendulum you know a pendulum it stops at the extremes and it passes really fast through the middle and the human brain works like that goes from one extreme to the other while passing very fast through the middle point and uh, we Christians, we are like that. We are not immune to that kind of uh, behavior. Sometimes we are more prone to that behavior. <clears throat> Therefore, it is very common to find among Christians uh, one of these two extremes. Legalism or antinomianism. Right? The legalist presents salvation... Uh, of the Christian li or, or the Christian life in terms of obedience, obedience to certain commandments, whether they come from the Bible, whether they don't come from the Bible, whether they are a mixture of human uh, inventions and commandments from God. The legalist presents the Christian life in terms of obedience to certain commandments. <clears throat> Without understanding the uh, distinction between the law and the gospel, then on the other extreme, we find the antinomian who insists that there is no need whatsoever of any law for a Christian to obey because we are not under the law, but under grace. That's what they say. Of course, that's a quotation from Romans. In Romans chapter 6, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. So, we are not under the law. We are under grace. Yes, that's true. But it is essential then to know the distinction between the law and the gospel to be able to understand the place of the law in the Christian's life. And in paragraph 6, in the chapter 19, the confession um, presents... 
the three uses of the moral law that we just sang in a, in a hymn, and that comes from the, uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. He writes, uh, you know, he wrote this, this book. Uh, it was published in 1536. It is like his masterwork, the work of his life, uh, and it's his uh, systematic theology. And it is uh, extremely important for, you know, has been for many centuries, uh, very important for the Protestant Reformation movement and uh, continues to be. And he says, he, he wrote this book for the aid to, to those who desire to be instructed in the doctrine of salvation. <clears throat> and there he says that the law has three uses, three he says first that the law is a mirror, a mirror, and he, uh, uh, we look in that mirror and we see our sin, we see our transgressions, we see our unrighteousness. And when a sinner looks in the mirror of the law of God, he sees himself as he really is, depraved and sinful and wretched and, and undone and lost, in need, of, in need of cleansing, in need of a savior. Then the second use in his, that we find in the Institutes is that the law is a restrainer of evil. A restrainer of evil. And I'm going to quote from, from the book. He says, The second office of the law is by means of its, its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for rectitude and justice. So it is a restrainer of evil. And number three, it is a revelation of the will of God. Believers who have been transformed by the gospel, he wrote, need the law as well, certainly not as a means of salvation, but as a guide to sanctification. So it seems to me that the authors of the confession, they have taken this, to make this paragraph that I'm going to read now. It's a lengthy paragraph, but it's easy to understand. So, chapter 19, paragraph 6. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of life, Informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate, to restrain their corruptions, in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve, or to show what their sins deserve, and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse, and unallayed means not mixed, not, not mingled with, unallayed rigor thereof, 
the promises of it likewise show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessing they may expect upon the performance thereof, though not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works, so as man's doing good and refraining from evil, be, because the law encouraged to the one and deters from the other, it is no evidence of being under the law and not under grace. So, lengthy paragraph. I'm glad there are commas and, and <laughs> you know, and, and semicolons because otherwise I would have choked to death. <laughs> <laughs> So the first thing that they tell us is, you know, they start with a disclaimer, a disclaimer. They say Christians are not under the law as a covenant of works. Christians are not under the law as a covenant of works. What does that mean? It means that we can neither be justified nor condemned by the law. That's what it means. That's what they mean by that. And that's the first thing that they want to establish, that we are not under the law. And that means that we cannot be condemned by the law. We cannot be justified by the law. See, in the old covenant, the law was a reiteration or a repetition of the covenant of works, the Mosaic law. When God gave his laws to the people of Israel and made a covenant with them, it was a repetition of the covenant of works because the law said what? Do these things and you shall live by them. Do these things and you shall live by them, right? Uh, Romans 10.5. Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law that the man which does those things shall live by them. That doesn't mean that it is possible to be justified by the law. On the contrary, no sinner can be justified by the works of the law. The law actually puts people under a curse, right? Galatians 3.10, it says there, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So for a sinner to be justified, it is not the law that has to change. It is not the status of the law that has to change. The sinner has to change. The sinner has to repent. And united to Christ by faith or through faith, then he receives justice. The justice of Christ. In Romans 5.19, we read, For as by one man's disobedience... Many were made sinners, Adam, so by the obedience of one, Jesus, shall many be made righteous. So, by the obedience of Jesus, then we are made righteous. Our righteousness is imputed righteousness. comes from the Lord Jesus. Therefore, a believer is no longer a sinner in relation to the law, but a righteous person. Romans 3 8, 3 to 4, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned 
sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. But what is the use of the law now if it doesn't justify? He has never been able to justify. But once a believer is justified and has satisfied the demands of the law by imputation, through faith in Jesus, what does, what use or what utility does the law have in his life? Can he ignore the law altogether? Because after all, we are not under law. We are under grace. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, this is the answer from the confession. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, Yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life. As a rule of life. As a covenant of works, the law is a ministration of death. Right? That's what the Apostle Paul uh, wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, but if the ministration of death written in... In tablets of stone, he calls the Ten Commandments given to the people a ministration of death. Why? Why does he? Why does he refer to the moral law like that? Well, because he is speaking of the law as a covenant of works, as a covenant of works that tells you do these things and you shall live by them. But it doesn't provide the means to obey. That's what the uh, the law. As a covenant of works did in the old covenant. But as a rule of life, the law is the law of liberty that the born again Christian tries to put in practice. So then after uh, establishing this fundamental distinction, the co confession continues then with the different positive effects of the law in the Christian's life. In first place, the law shows the Christian his duties towards God and his neighbor. Your duties, my duties towards God and my neighbors. Where do I find that in the moral law? In the moral law of God. They say, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and bind them, binds them to walk accordingly. It instructs us what is the will of God. How can I please God? Well, the law does not save you, does not justify you, does not condemn you, but it instructs, gives you instruction on what to do. Knowing the will of God, then the child of God can live his life in a way that is pleasing to him. Mm -hmm. Romans 12, 2. What does it say? It says, after explaining... For 11 chapters, that justification is by grace. He says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How do you do that? How do you come to the knowledge of what is the good and the will and acceptable will of God? He says, by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? From the word of God. 
from his law, from his moral law. Then in second place by the law is the knowledge of sin. The knowledge of sin. First, it is an instruction. Second, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.20 Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. How do you know that you have sinned against God? Well, you have his moral law. And they say in the confession, now I'm quoting from the confession, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives. So as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin. Conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin. Together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. And that's where Calvin said, it is a mirror. It is a mirror for you to look into the law and see, see yourself for who you really are. This is what God, this is his, his holy standard. Go and stand before his holy standard and look at yourself and compare yourself against a uh, uh, God's holy standards. What are you going to see? You're going to see that you're sinful. You're going to see that you're a liar. You're going to see that you're a deceiver. You're going to see that you're an adulterer. You're going to see all those things in your life. When you see yourself in that mirror of the law, of the moral law. <clears throat> um, the Apostle Paul again in Romans chapter 7 verses 7 to 14. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, I have no, not, not known sin, but by the law. For I have not known lust, except the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, worked in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and is just, and is good. Was then that which is good made death to me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good the moral law that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful for we know that the law is spiritual but i am carnal sold under sin so basically he's saying the same thing before i did not have the law of course he had <clears throat> The knowledge, he had the instruction, but it was not in his heart. He had never stopped to say, wait a minute, the law says, thou shalt not covet. And I am a covetous man. <clears throat> so he says, when the law came, when it become a clear thing in my mind, what he says, what, I died. Why? Because I saw my sin. I saw my transgressions. I looked at myself in that mirror of the law, and I saw that I am a sinner. 
So on this regard, then the law has a double use. To convince Christians of their sins, but also to lead them to humiliation and to hatred of sin. Mm -hmm. Humiliation and hatred of sin. And that's uh, uh, what they say here in the confession. So as examining themselves thereby, in the light of God's moral law, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin. Then there is the third use of the law. And, and the third use of the law is that it shows what need we have of Christ. What need we have of Christ. They say together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Christ is the end of the law. The law shows you, you need Christ. You need Jesus. You know, it's not like in the times of the Lord Jesus, the uh, interpreters of the law, they had watered down the law, the real law of God. And then they had added a lot of commandments that had nothing to do with the law of God. So, but they interpreted the law in such a way that they, they could say, I have kept all those commandments. Everything. Since my youth, I have kept the commandments of God. The commandments of the, of, of the Lord. Well, no. The law, the end of the law is to show you that you need Christ. That you cannot obey those commandments. It's not for you to say, well, I am a holy man. I am a righteous man because I have obeyed. And you know, like that uh, a Pharisee that stood in the temple saying, God, I thank you because I am not a sinner. I am not an adulterer. I am not a thief. I am not this. I am not that. That was his prayer. He was praising himself because according to the idea, the knowledge that he had, the interpretation of the law that he received from the interpreters of the law, according to that interpretation, he saw himself as a perfectly righteous man. Not understanding that the purpose of the law is to show you, you are a sinner. You need Christ. You need a savior. You need redemption. He did not understand that. <clears throat> so then, um, it comes the question of why then a, a Christian obeys the Lord Jesus Christ. What are the reasons that we have for obeying the moral law of God? In first place, the obedience of the Christian does not come from an effort to obtain some kind of merit from God, some kind of favor from God, to earn brownie points or something like that. The obedience of the Christian comes from gratitude that flows from a regenerate heart. Gratitude that flows from a heart that has been renewed by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, it says, Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. The word grace there, better interpreted, interpreted as gratitude. Thankfulness, like when you say, like when you are about to eat and you do what? You say grace, right? It's not grace in the sense of unmerited favor. It is grace in the sense of 
giving thanks. So having or receiving this kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, let us have, have gratitude. In the ESV translate like this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. A Christian obeys by gratitude because he is grateful to God for what God has done to him. Another reason to obey is the fact that we are new creatures, and as new creatures, we should live. Like new creatures, right? The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If you are a new creature, everything in your life is new. The old things, the old, what you were before, is gone. Everything is new. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8 he says for you were sometimes darkness but now you are light in the lord walk as children of light right if you say you are light then walk as children of light if you say you are a new creature then walk as a new creature then another reason for obedience is that now we serve god not under the covenant of works but under the new covenant Therefore, the moral law is no longer administration of death. Because we do not obey the moral law under the covenant of works, but under the new covenant. The new covenant says this, Hebrews 8.10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and I will write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be... To me, a people. So the new covenant is a, also a repetition of the law. But now it comes with a means to obey it. The old covenant was administration of death. Because it gave you the law. It gave you, gave you your duty. But it did not give you the means to obey it. But the new covenant gives you the means to obey it. Jeremiah 32, 40. He says, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, and they shall not depart from me. What a difference. What a difference. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. And a new heart also I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So the Christian obeys, not simply because the law commands obedience, because he finds pleasure in his heart, because he has a new heart and a new spirit. The Apostle Paul again uh, verse uh, chapter 7 verse 22 he says for I delight in the law of God after the inward man it is the flesh that opposes but the new man in the spirit the new heart the new spirit the regenerate man delights in the law of God that's what he says finds delight in it then the confession uh, finishes by answering an objection answering an objection if we obey the law, this is the objection, then we are putting ourselves under the law. 
And the Christian is no longer under the law, but under grace. All right? That's the objection. And they say, and I'm quoting from the, uh, the last part of the paragraph. So as man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourages to the one and deters to the other, is no evidence of being under the law and not under grace. What are they saying? The fact that you are obeying the law because you are a new creature, because you delight in the law of God after the inward man, is no evidence whatsoever that we are under the law. How do we know that? Because when Paul wrote that phrase in Romans, that we are not under the law, but under grace, he did it to encourage obedience. Amazing. That's probably the most, most misunderstood passage in the whole Bible. <laughs> right? When he wrote that, he did it to encourage people to obey God. Let me read it to you. Romans 6 verses uh, 12 to 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Right? That you should obey in the lust thereof. Neither yield you your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but yield yourself to God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What is he saying? Do not obey sin. Then obey who? Obey God. Why? Because you are not under law because you are under grace. The fact of being under grace and not under the law is an encouragement to obey God. He says, live, live now. Present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Why? Because you are not under law. You are under grace. And the grace comes with what? With a new heart. With a new spirit. With everything that you need to obey Amen? Amen. Well, then next week, uh, God willing, we will continue. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we come before your holy presence and we thank you one more time, Lord, for giving us your law. In it, we can see ourselves as we tr truly are sinners in desperate need of Christ. And having come to Christ now as a new creature, so we find delight in your commandments. So we Pray, Lord, that we may continue to obey you until the end of our lives. And we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.